Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Today, I'm joined by Louise O'Neill, who is a renowned author and journalist. In this episode, we discuss Louise's journey during her Saturn return. At 27, she was living back with her parents after returning from her job in fashion journalism in New York. Her relationship had ended, a dwindling bank account and suffering from a severe relapse in her eating disorder. It was a rock bottom that many of us experienced during our Saturn return. And she very openly discusses her experience during this time. Our Saturn return can be an incredibly turbulent and also transformative time in our lives. Louise speaks very openly about how there were times where she felt hopeless and lost. Even when she was at one of her highest points of success professionally, because she firmly holds the belief that sometimes everything falls apart and comes together at the same time. And I often talk about this, that we can have the facade, we can be experiencing external success, but if something is off internally, we won't feel emotionally anchored or grounded. Louise very openly reflects on her 20-year battle with an eating disorder, which affected every aspect of her life. She shares her recent experience from her Saturn maturation, which is when we go into our next visit from Saturn at 37 after our Saturn return, which is also a profound time of self-reflection, introspection and re-evaluation. In this episode, we discuss toxic relationship patterns, our inner critics, energetic shielding and how to deepen our female intuition. A big theme of this conversation is that happiness is ultimately an inside job. Thank you very much, Louise, for having this very honest and vulnerable conversation with me. And to those of you who are listening, please take caution if you are affected by subjects of addiction and eating disorders, you might find this episode triggering. Louise, welcome to the Saturn Returns podcast. We're very excited to have you. How are you doing? I'm very well. Um, I just saw that um, Emma Roberts, did you see this? She was talking about her yes. Saturn Returns. I thought very on brand. <laughs> I know, you know, she's been taught, she did that post and honestly, so many press pieces around it. And I'm just hearing like, hello, come talk to me. <laughs> but it's good, you know, because it kind of puts the whole concept on the map because, you know, I, I really wanted to speak to you today specifically about your Saturn Returns journey because, of course, like the overarching theme of the podcast and it often comes back to Saturn Return. But we don't, we haven't had that many episodes where we really home in on someone's Saturn return experience. And it sounds like it was like a big moment for you, right? Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that I'm really into like, I mean, I'm a lapsed Catholic. Um, I was very religious as a child. And then I think sort of in the early 2000s, when a lot of stories were coming out about, you know, the sex abuse scandals and the Magdalene laundries, I left the church and then new age spirituality I think really when I was around 15 or 16 sort of filled that void so I've been really interested in you know like I suppose stuff that you would say is quite woo -woo for like decades now um but I'd never heard of um like when I was going through my Saturn return I hadn't heard of it it would have really helped (laughs) it definitely would have helped because I wonder sometimes when people come to the live shows and stuff, they'll say, I've put a marker in my calendar. I know when it's going to happen. Should I be afraid? I'm like, no, I was never intending to sort of terrify people or make them sort of satinophobic. But it was really intended to make people feel okay about the whole mm. situation and, and the things that might come up. So mm. would you be able to kind of share with us a little bit about that experience for you sure I mean I think it's it's interesting now as I said because at the time I didn't know and now looking back I can see how there was really 
big life events kind of happening on either side of it. So like when I was 27, um, I moved, I had been working in New York um, for a fashion magazine and I moved home um, to start writing my first, which, which would become my first book. But like I had, I'd had an eating disorder. I sort of had a relapse while I was working in New York, had come home. My boyfriend had broken up with me. Um, I, I didn't have any money. And I had to move back in with my parents at the age of 27. And then I think when everything kind of falls apart like that, you think this is a really good opportunity maybe to rebuild my life in the way that I want to. Um, So I started writing. But then on the other side of it, um, when I was 31, I'd had another relapse. And, And I think anyone who has struggled with addiction or anyone who has struggled with an eating disorder, um, understands I suppose that that relapses is really part of the cycle Mm -hmm. um and I suppose often I think when um particularly the the first time that we go into rehab or the first time that we go into recovery there's this real sense of hope that it'll be like one and done Mm -hmm. um and then I think that with with every new relapse like a little bit of hope sort of diminishes um both in yourself and I think in the people around you because they trust you less. They sort of, I think, have diminished faith each time that you relapse that, you know, that I suppose maybe the full recovery is even possible. Yeah, it's like, it feels like your word means less, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I actually, it's Mm -hmm. interesting that this is kind of coming up because I had a conversation yesterday. We had Alex Light. I don't know if you know her. And she was talking about eating disorders. And then I was on the phone to my mum and she'd invited me to a talk. And it was all around like someone who'd recovered from their eating disorder. And she told me that a third, basically how it apparently goes statistically, is like a third of people will recover a third of people will learn to just live with it in a way that's kind of they can cope and a third of people will actually die and I was so shocked by that and I don't think we recognize or realize what a the high like mortality rate to it and like what a complex thing it is to struggle with so I mean thank you for speaking about that because I think like you say with anything that people struggle with with addiction and stuff and then you do relapse, it knocks your, it knocks your confidence in yourself and your ability to kind of actually recover. But I always like the saying that healing isn't linear, you know, and and like you said, it's part of the process sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure it is very, I mean, you know, when I talk to my parents um, and my sister in particular, because I developed an eating disorder when I was 14, Um, and I went into proper recovery when I was 32 and there were other times where I might have had six months where I felt like, oh, I think this is going to be it, or I think I'm going to be okay. And then I would relapse again. And then I suppose the whole cycle of like the secrecy and the lying, um, would start. And my, my dad always said that was the part that hurt him the most because he said, you were such an honest child. He said, you were too honest. He said, you know, you were, you just always said exactly what was on your mind. And he said, it really makes me so sad that now as an adult, that like, I just don't know whether to believe you or not. And that their instinct, I think towards the end was not just to, yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really sad. Mm. So at 27, that was kind of all going on. Yes, I, 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 had, I had started that when I talk about the six months of kind of having a period of recovery, I had started seeing a really excellent therapist when I was in New York and she was just amazing. And then I had to come home because my visa expired and, you know, all of these things. And she said to me, she was like, you, you are very early in recovery. You need support. You need like a team around you. You need to find a therapist and a nutritionist when you go home. And then, I don't know, I suppose I came home um, and I think I got a bit cocky. You know, I just thought, no, I'm okay. I'm doing really well. You know, this will be fine. I don't, I don't need, um, I don't really need anyone. I don't need that support right now. And I relapsed, I'd say, within six weeks maybe of coming home. Um, yeah, 
I came home at, at the end of August and I had relapsed by my parents' anniversary, which is October. You don't mind me asking, what does re, what did relapsing look like for you? Well, mine, see, it kind of depended because, I mean, as I said, I've ha- I had it for like 17 years. Um, so it sort of went between like severe restriction and then um, binging and purging. Um, and and then there was maybe um, exercise, compu- you know, um, a compulsion at times, but it was really restriction and then binge purge. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what it was. That was what it was like for me. And it just I mean, it's so interesting talking about it now because as I said, it started when I was 14. My parents um, asked me to start seeing a therapist when I was 17. I was hospitalized for three months when I was 21. Um, and then I went to New York when I was around 25. I had a very bad relapse. I, mean, I remember when I left, my mother did say, do you think working in a fashion industry, like, do you think that would, do you think that'll help? <laughs> and I said, don't worry, it'll be totally fine. Um, and she was right, it did not help. Um, so yeah, so I had a very bad relapse while I was there of like really, really restricting, like just eating just very, very little. And also I think having such a just completely messed up idea around like what a meal would constitute, you know, like talking to my therapist and I would say, oh, I did really well. You know, I didn't binge and purge. And she would say, okay, well, you know, what did you eat? And I would sort of run through what I, you know, what I'd had that day. And she'd be like, a grapefruit is, is not a meal. You know, like, oh, oh, is it not? <laughs> so because I, because I mean, honestly, because I'd had it, I mean, as I said, when I went into full recovery, I was 32. So I'd had an eating disorder for 17 years and I had like been healthy for 14 years. So for, for the entire, for the majority of the, my life and for the like entirety of my adult life, I'd had an eating disorder. So I think, you know, when we talk about recovery, you know, again, what you're saying, you know, that like a third of people will recover, a third of people, you know, will learn how to live with it. I thought that maybe I would fit into that category because I just thought at this point, like the neural pathways, yeah. you know, around this addiction are so firmly Embedded. Like, laid down. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea how I would ever sort of rewire them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. And like, I think it's really important to to tell people that because I think like we, it's so easy to lose hope and it's so easy to think I've had it for too long and I'm too sick. And, you know, as I said, it's too embedded. Um but full recovery is possible. And I remember when I, I started seeing this new therapist around the time of my Saturn return, I was 32. And she asked me to bring my parents to see her. And they came in and, I mean, it was very shaming, like in a way, because I suppose you think that you're hiding so much of your behavior. And then I think to sit with my parents while they spoke. You realized that they exactly, knew. They knew, Yeah. And it was like, it was a, and they were so kind about it, but it was so, because you think, then you think, oh God, who else knows? Yeah. Are people talking about me? Yeah. Yeah. Are people talking about me behind my back? And, um, and she said to them, like, she asked me to leave so she could talk to them. And, you know, my dad just said, look, we just want her to live as normal a life as she can at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. And my therapist said to them, and they told me this afterwards, she, she said, oh, full recovery is possible. And she said, I, I believe that Louise will fully recover. And it was something about the, the certainty with which she said that for my parents, but she, she reiterated that to me. And I think having someone who can hold that hope for you when it just, that hope seems so impossible and outlandish, it's, it's it's a it's a lifeline. Hundred percent. I think you know hope is the most important thing in those moments in time. Mm. So, what was that journey like to healing? Mm. I mean, it was long and it was hard. Um, it, I'll be six years recovered in June, and you know it's funny because no matter what happens in my life now. You know, I've, I've been through sort of difficult experiences and I can see sometimes people will worry around me like, oh, will this cause? And it, to me, that seems so impossible because my recovery feels so rock solid. Um, but it was challenging. Like, I suppose there, were, there was two parts to it. The first part to it, which sounds so basic, um, was I had to refeed myself 
because there's been really interesting studies done. Um, the Minnesota Starvation Study, which was done, I think, in the 1940s, where they took this um, group of conscientious objectors from the um, war. I think they were American. And they were. And um, they basically restricted their calories. Um, just these very ordinary men, you know, had no history of mental health issues or, or eating um, problems. And like within a few weeks, like the men became really obsessive about their food. They started hoarding their food. They started like, you know, what we would describe as almost binging um, on the food if they, whenever they got access to it. Um, so like, I suppose often when we talk about eating disorders, we're very focused on the psychological um, aspects of it, which are obviously very important. But like the physical part, like you're malnourished. Mm -hmm. And when you're malnourished, you can't make good decisions. Your brain isn't functioning properly. So like, a big part of it was working with a dietitian and really sticking to my meal plan. And then the other part was just challenging every single eating disorder thought that arose, every single one, which like there were a lot of them. Can you give me an example? So let's say if I was sitting down to eat and um, let's say I was sitting with my sister and a friend of ours and my sister is like, oh, I'm not very hungry. I had a big breakfast or something. And the eating sort of thought would be, you know, why does she get to just eat a salad and you have to eat this? She's going to get thinner than you. And then everyone's going to think mm. she's more, you know, like, you know, like really, you know, competitive. Is she really not hungry or is yeah, she just, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm feeling really jealous that other people could just say, I'm not hungry. And you're like, well, why can't I say that? Because I have an eating disorder and she doesn't. And then I think it was really sitting with that. And like the question that I asked myself over and over again is, is this ultimately true? And there was always like evidence or there was always, you know, like I think, oh, no, that can't be true because, you know, you would always find like some sort of reason or, as I said, some sort of evidence that would break down um, this idea or this thought that you'd had. Like if, you know, if I say, well, if I eat that, I'm going to be fat. And then I would think, oh, well, my dad's eating it and he's not fat. And, and, and like, as obviously time went on, I would, ha I sort of, I think began to interrogate, well, there's nothing wrong with being fat. But I think in the beginning, it was very much trying to like mm -hmm. break down, as I said, the, the kind of evidence looking at other people and being like, well, she's eating a normal meal and she's fine. So like, I, I should be safe if I do this as well. So I think it was really trying to challenge all of those thoughts. Yeah. Because it's recognizing that those thoughts are now completely irrational. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and actually, the ones that are governing governing you, because it can sort of be as like you think if you eat that thing, or if you do, you actually look at yourself and you physically you feel like you look different, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's so complicated because you're having to really dismantle that voice that has been the main voice in your head. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is like I mean. I, Having gone through this, and I mean, you know, I have a couple of close friends who are in recovery as well, um, both are recovering um, alcoholics, like it really reinforces, I think, just my belief in the hum human capacity to change, um, because mm -hmm. I think often we just say, oh, this is just the way I am. Um, and it does take a lot of time and effort and energy to, as I, I keep saying, like it's rewiring those neural pathways, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that when, when you've done it once, and I have seen, because I have done it, like I do not worry about food now. I don't think about food. I don't think about my weight. I, I, I mean, I haven't weighed myself in six years. And like the freedom from all of that is absolutely extraordinary. Um, mm -hmm. And I suppose, again, it's just trying to like let, because I feel like so many women I know are, you know, what they might not have, an eating disorder but they struggle with some kind of you know disordered eating or poor body image um because and I know I think we're all under like an immense amount of pressure to sort of um adhere to you know what are conventional beauty standards and, and unfortunately thinness is like a real part of that a hundred percent because I I definitely felt that a big one for me during my Saturn return was actually changing that self-talk very like it wasn't as extreme but I had a quite tortured relationship with my body from probably the age of about uh, 16 17 mm. and it was like I'd so I'd become so disconnected from 
just trusting what it needed when it needed. And it became this, like, not this sort of feast or famine. But it was, again, it was like people wouldn't have known. But the voice in my head was like a kind of constant of, well, you can't do that until you're yeah. thinner. Yeah. Or you can't go there or you can't get a boyfriend or like, no, you're not worthy of that. You have to be, you know, all of these kind of rules and restrictions that were just in my mind. And it was during my Saturn return where I was like, I don't want to live yeah. like this. Yeah. I don't want to live limiting myself or speaking to myself in this way that nobody even knows about because I looked normal. Yeah. And that's, I think, the sort of the sinister aspect of it is that, of course, in everyone it manifests differently and to varying degrees, but it can still, for a lot of people that are just going around their life day to day, you may have no idea that this kind of stuff is going on. And it and it kind of breaks my heart to hear, you know, your experience and to think of anyone else going through it as well. But at the same time, that there's hope in healing and that you can. And it's interesting because the terminology you use is very intertwined with addiction and recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Because I, I actually phrased it the other day in a conversation. I said, you know, I do liken it to an addiction. The only more complicated aspect is it's something you have to address every day, three times a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I very deliberately use, um, as you said, like recovery and addiction um, language around it. And actually my therapist, who is a specialist in eating disorders, asked me about that once. And I said, well, like the there is... And inc- like I mean, firstly, all addictions like we use them to numb pain. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know whether that's like when people are addicted to literal painkillers, but like it is sometimes the world just feels too much, too cruel, um, too loud, too harsh, and we like uh, we're not sure of how we can sort of survive in it. So in order to like you know drown out the noise, or in order to numb some of the pain, we use this behavior. Um, whatever that is, whether that is sex or drink or drugs or food. So to me, they all feel very linked. Um, but particularly, I think the the um, bulimia um, and the binge project, that felt very addictive um, because there was a real desperation around it and the, the planning of the, the um, you know, the binges and, you know, having to find time and space um, to be alone and, you know, resenting anyone who, you know, intruded, yeah, exactly, intruded yeah. on that. So, like, when I talk to people who are drug addicts or alcoholics, like, it feels very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Mm, that's so fascinating. Do you, if you don't mind me asking, I tend to ask quite personal questions <laughs> on this show, but when you kind of went through the recovery process, did what did you find was at the core of the behaviour? You know, what was the un- underlying feeling that or pain that you were trying to escape through this? Oh, I think it's the, I mean, it's the human condition. It's, I'm not good enough. Like, I think that yeah. is at the core of so much. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really think when yeah. you boil down, like anything, it sort of comes down to this feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm just not good enough. Um, and trying to make yourself good enough in, you know, for me, it was like, you know, academic achievement or the way in which I looked um, and, you know, making sure that my body presented a certain way. Um, and yeah, and I think at the, at the core, and then, you know, like getting into, you know, sort of very messy, romantic um, in, entanglements where I just really, like it felt like very obsessive and where I, um, you know, there was there was no real promise of commitment or, you know, anything like that. And, and it was really because I thought, well, I'm not good enough. And this person clearly recognizes that I'm not good enough. And if I can make this person love me, then maybe I can believe I'm worth, like, it's so good. Like, it's so almost cliche to know the way you're like, oh God, I'm just like everybody else. No, it, it's not though, because I don't think everybody else is able to articulate it or recognize that, you know, and I think you're so right. We We do, we're also sort of, if you think about, the media and films growing up, it was always the very popular storyline was like the girl that 
was a bit of a misfit, but somehow got, you know, made herself hot and like got the <laughs> got the guy, you know? So every girl is like, oh, well, if a guy is being a bit aloof and treating me not very well, but they'll eventually pick me and then I'll sort of transform. Yeah. And it really gets you in into a, a mess, like messy entanglements yeah. and allowing yourself to sort of justify the unjustifiable. Yes. And I think actually it's funny when you were talking because I that all kind of was happening around my like 30, 31. Um, and I think so much of it as well was like, you know, you know, Oprah always says like, you know, happiness is an inside job. And I think that I was really looking for happiness in like my career and in success and in the way I looked and the way men responded to me or, you know, like, you know, a, a relationship or whatever. And like, what's interesting is like around the time of my Saturn return, I was going through, I suppose, what was, what looked like from the outside, just the most incredible period of my entire life, you know, um, success. Yeah. The, you know, I, my second novel, um, had really taken off, um, and it sort of become almost like a cultural sort of, it started like a, a cultural conversation in Ireland. And, you know, I, it, it was, it, it just, yeah, it really took off. It was sort of in the top 10 for like a year and they made a, a, a documentary inspired by it. And, and, and I suppose, you know, as I said to the outside, it just looked like, everything was going just so perfectly well um and I was falling apart like I just couldn't I mean it's funny even when I when I say it there I can feel like my heart kind of just start to race a little bit quicker just even like just remembering like just it was I think it just felt like I had a target on my back it felt like I was so exposed I felt really vulnerable um and the um, and I was eating less and less and less, and like the um, and 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 the you know the bulimia was coming back in again, and it was just such a nightmare. Um, and I think it really sometimes I think when when you get everything that you think you want, and you stop and you say, "Oh, but I'm still not happy. Um, I still I still feel like I have this hole inside me, um, and I've tried to fill it with the addiction, and now I've tried to fill it with success." Um, and I've tried to fill it with, you know, with like affection or love or whatever. And nothing is like touching the sides of this hole. Like it really feels like, I don't know, it just makes you think, well, then I'll never be happy. Do you know, it's just this awful kind of moment of of reckoning. Um, and I think it was at that point that I thought, oh, I have to, I have to recover because I, 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 I think that I just, it was quite a fatalistic. I thought, well, I'll either recover or I'll die. You know, at that point, mm -hmm. it kind of felt like there wasn't going to be anywhere um, in between. Did you feel like the success was making it worse in a way? Yes. I mean, there was many different aspects to that. I mean, part of it was, you know, being on TV and getting my photo taken um, yeah. and, you know, finding that really triggering and, thinking well you know if I, at least if I'm thinner I don't have to worry um you know that I'll I, I'll I'll you know that thing of like oh you look however many pounds heavier in a photograph whereas so I thought yeah, yeah. oh well, at least if I'm and thinner, if you if you have an eating disorder you think you look a thousand pounds <laughs> exactly exactly and just being really I don't know like really kind of confronted by that and like whenever I would see a bad photo I wasn't able to sort of say oh just a bad photo like it would just yeah. make me feel so like the self-loathing was so intense and then the only way that I found to deal with the self-loathing was the eating disorder and then you know because of the nature of that book which is you know dealing with sexual violence I would do events and I would have a lot of people coming up to me telling me their stories and it was I mean Whoa. I mean it was really I mean I I, I feel really honored like I do but it's a lot. It is. And I would go back to my empty hotel room and I remember just feeling like really hollowed out. And again... You don't even know what's your energy and what someone else's yes, at that point. Yes. You feel that like emotion and you're like, I want to cry. Do, am I crying or am I crying for someone else? Like, what is this? Yeah. And I think, you know, well, firstly, I'm not a trained therapist, but I also think now I'm very good at like energetic shielding and, you know, like really kind of taking care of my energy in that yeah. way. It's no joke that stuff like you've got to have your spiritual hygiene because when you're dealing with that kind of responsibility and those stories yeah it's 
a lot to take on. Yeah. So, you know, now I'll go back and I'll have like, <laughs> I'll have like my, my uh, like little stick of incense and like a bath and, you know, I'll, like I kind of have like a whole ritual to sort of feel like I'm like cleansing. Um, and, but yeah, I think, you know, I suppose the only way in which I had to, I think both, you know, I suppose zone out or even just recover from that kind of um, feeling was, was like, oh, the eating disorder. Like that, that, that's the kind of the comfort. That's the thing to go to. That's the relief. That's the respite. And it's, I mean, it's so, you know, I always say this with, with um, addiction or, you know, you wouldn't do it unless it had worked in the beginning, you know, mm. like, and it did at one point, it did like give some sort of comfort and then it becomes this sort of, you know, vicious cycle where it's causing the harm, it's causing the pain, and it's pretending to be the the antidote to it as well. Yeah. But like you say, at some point it did, it was the only thing. And there's a reason, but man, I know that space. I know it well. It's incredibly painful. Yeah. And we're not taught how to self-soothe. And I think that's such a valuable yeah. lesson. And like children should be taught that in school, like how to self-soothe without needing, a, a, you know, an external source or substance, you know, that, that you that you have this ability within yourself to care for yourself. Especially if you're creative, sensitive, emotional person that feels everything very deeply, mm. but doesn't know how to kind of process the emotion, then unfortunately we do. That's why addiction in varying degrees is so rife because people aren't taught how to regulate their systems. Yeah. And also we get very used to this very cruel internal dialogue that gives us this illusion of control, but is actually so damaging and robs us of so many mm. of so many things of so much joy in life yeah yeah but I think you know it's like obviously sometimes I look back and I think oh it's sad that I spent you know my all of my teens and all of my 20s struggling with this you know it feels like such a waste of a time where I should have felt free and I should have you know been out having fun and I should have you know just making mistakes and you know I mean I did plenty of that as well but anyway <laughs> um but I think now I actually feel really grateful for the experience because I have these incredible tools in my life you know um like I, I always describe it as like the scaffolding that kind of holds my life together so that when things go wrong and they have um I feel so steady because I have, you know, my therapy, I have, you know, yoga, I have meditation, um, I have, you know, like acupuncture or, or Reiki or reflex, you know, like I have all of these kind of things around me and like my journaling and, um, and just, I don't know, you know, like going to um, swim, um, swimming in the sea, like I have all of these things that I do um, and I do them consistently um, to the point where they've become so automatic that when something goes wrong, I yeah. still do reach for those things, you know, like it's, and it, I yeah. think that is what has been just so helpful. And that's such a sort of Saturn Returns thing, because I relate very deeply to all of those things as my infrastructure for and the foundations that I live by. So when things do go a little bit off or I'm not feeling very good in my head or I've had an argument with my boyfriend or whatever, I know the practices and the tools to come back to. Whereas in my 20s, I'd like, I don't know, go out and get completely off my head and then next day feel awful and hate myself and then eat loads and loads of food and then feel worse. And then, do you know what I mean? Like that, I look back, I'm like, why did no one tell me how these things then, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's kind of, as you said, it just makes everything worse. It's that kind of like... A vicious cycle. It is a vicious cycle. But in terms of the relationship piece, because I know our audience is always, this is always a very popular subject and something I find quite fascinating because you said you would get in these quite toxic entanglements. Would you be able to kind of share a little bit more about what that was like and um, where you're at now with it? No, I mean, I think that's definitely 
part of the past. I mean, I think whenever I would meet someone before I recovered and um, whenever I would meet someone who was lovely um, to me, I would think, oh, they're just, this is boring. Like this is very dull. <laughs> they are far too nice to me. And, and I also think they're because of that sense of like low self-worth, any, you know, what's that, um, that was a great remark. like, I don't want to be part of any club that will have me. So there was a part <laughs> that was like, I that. yeah, so I think it was almost like, well, if this guy likes me, I mean, what's wrong with him? Yeah, what's wrong with you? You have no standards, clearly. Um, and yes, I think I always wanted that like challenge um, and someone playing like really hard to get. And, and it was, again, like, you know, someone who, who clearly didn't care about me um and it was a there was a few of them um that I can I think of maybe three and I was just so determined to like make them absolutely love me and like the more that they were like and then you'd be okay (laughs) then you'd be fixed and of course the thing is is that if they had I would have lost you wouldn't like them exactly I I would have lost interest you like me what's wrong with you So it just was like, I would have been like, okay, next, next, next. So yeah, I think it was really just like learning to, I don't know, to really sit with it and to think, okay, um, you know, what is it I want? And also really believing that like I deserved love, that I deserved to be treated well, that, you know, that I deserved to be, you know, treated with respect and I deserve to have my needs met and that was a big thing for me because, you know, I was just really used to, and I think maybe a lot of women are like this, were kind of conditioned to take care of um, other people's, you know, other people's worries and other people's concerns. I'm a real caretaker. Like I love taking care of people. And so I think that has been sort of a lifelong, because, you know, with all of this, um, you know, we're constantly, we're constantly learning. Like it's just, it's, you know, I don't think that there is a moment where you think, Oh, I'm done. I've got it all sorted. You know, like, and when you do, watch to help. Yes, <laughs> that's when, like, that's when the next big lesson is coming. But also, the sort of cruel irony of this whole thing is that often to really know our own worth and to get into a place of deservingness, we are confronted by a situation with a situation that makes us feel our worst. Do you know what I mean? It's only in those moments where you just you've hit the rock bottom and you're like, no, this cannot be it. Yeah. I, I think people, it would just come along and they just see that person. They're like, yeah, I feel deserving and you're wonderful. And woohoo. <laughs> yes. That would, that would be lovely. Um, but I don't, I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, this year has been a little bit tumultuous um, and I'm trying to sit with it. Like I'm trying to just think, everything that is happening and everything that is being cleared from my life is for my higher good. Um, and it, mm-hmm. it almost feels, I mean, I just turned 38 in February, but it almost feels like <laughs> Saturn return part two. Um, well, you'll probably, you'll be, I've gone through a Saturn maturation. So Saturn has squares and opposition. So at 36, 37, oh you do go through. Yeah. So yeah, well, yeah. No, no. Okay. This makes sense because I am, um, yeah, like a long-term relationship just broke up. Um, and I, I keep thinking when, when we were, you know, getting ready for this interview, I just thought like Saturn returns really reminds me of the tower um, card in the tarot. And mm-hmm. um, I have this book. I'm actually going to read you a little section from it um, because I just love this explanation of the, the tower. Because I think people who aren't familiar with the tarot are always really afraid of the death card. Whereas actually, I think yeah. the tower card is like the one where I'm like, oh no. <laughs> um, so it, in my book, which is Karina uh, Collins, this Irish woman, um, and it says, when, when, the t- when the tower card appears, it means fate has or soon will intervene to force change, which you know in your heart is overdue. Ultimately, what transpires sends you in a new direction, hurtling you towards your true destiny. The tower strips away any false sense of security in your home, relationships, work, belief system, or sense of self. It may feel like the universe is out to get you as events come with speed, one thing after the other. The problems cannot be dodged, but must be faced and dealt with. 
And at first you may resist, but then you become excited as you start to see the potential of what is unfolding before you. Higher powers are protecting you, stretching you, and directing you towards a situation more amazing than you ever could have dreamt of. So everything is falling apart and coming together at the same time. So I was like, that is very sad return. That is so Saturn return. That's what one of the chapters in my book is things fall apart so better things can come together. So when everyone, anyone's going through it, I'm always like a little bit excited because I know that something fantastic is around the corner. And I think if we can get more into that state of mind to kind of be open to the possibility of what might be unfolding, it kind of just changes your whole perspective mm-hmm. on life, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And I, um, someone said to me recently that life is not happening to you. It's happening for you. And again, I think it's that kind of shift in perspective because it's very easy to kind of, you know, get into self-pity and get into sort of victim mode. And it's really trying to think, okay, well, what what is this here to teach me? Like, what is it that I have to learn so that I don't repeat the patterns, you know, in my next relationship or in my next career or in my next job or, you know, what, whatever, like the case may be. Um, and I think that when you can try and look at it like that, it fe- as you said, it feels almost, almost exciting. Like in the midst of the, you know, in the midst of the chaos, it can feel kind of exciting. And it's, it's hard to do because I also wrote in the book a lot about victim mentality because that was something I would very much fall into and in my 20s it was like everything was happening to me nothing was happening for me and again that sort of reframe invites more positivity you know it's just that shift that gear shift like okay I don't know why this is happening it's a shit storm right now but I trust you know to be in trust that it's gonna be okay so I mean, I'm sorry, equally, I'm sorry that you're going through that, but I'm glad that you've got to a place where you're like inviting it in and excited about, I think when you get excited about the space, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, the universe yeah. abhors a vacuum. Yeah, and you can feel, like almost I think you can feel energetically like something that hasn't quite arrived, but its energy is almost there. Yeah. I love that. And how how about the sort of career stuff? Because I'm curious to know, you said that when you were like at a rock bottom was when things were actually going very well. How have you managed to kind of get through that upper limit that you had to really step into that place and kind of fully embody it and feel deserving of that Mm -hmm, success? Well, I think for a while after, like that, that was 2016. And I think for like a couple of years afterwards, I had to take a step back. Like my health had to be my first priority. Um, and I think I made my life smaller in a way to make it more manageable. Um, you know, like I kept my kind of the group of people around me very tight and moved back to my hometown. Um, and, you know, just really, I think, protected myself as much as I could. And now I think over the last, you know, couple of years, like, you know, particularly with Idol, which was, um, you know, the, the, uh, my last book, um, I think that I have really felt much more able to step into my power um, and to step into my ambition and, and, you know, to say, you know, I want to be successful. I want this to do well. I want this book to be read and, you know, all of those things. Um, and I think to, and, and again, I think, trying to do that while also blocking out all the outside noise. Um, because I think, and I'm sure, I, I can't even imagine what it's like, you know, for someone like you, but, you know, there were a lot of, you know, like trolls or, um, you know, like these message boards and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I think that once you start getting worried about what, you know, a huge, I don't know how many, how many people, like what they think of you, you won't do anything. Yeah, because you can't hear your own voice. You can't hear your own. And like that has been like the thing for this year that I've really, you know, at the start of every year, I pick a word that I want to focus on. Yeah, and, I love that. And at the start of this year, I picked intuition because I felt like I had really like stopped listening to myself and stopped listening to my heart and, you know, and, and been very led by what the people around me were thinking, you know, and people mm. who loved me, like, you know, it wasn't that they had bad intentions, they had really good intentions, but like sort of being led by 
what they thought or their morals or their ideas or their opinions, rather than actually sitting and thinking, what is right for me? What do I need? Like, you know, what is the right next step for me? And I think so that has been this year, like really trying to, I think, prioritize that is like, yeah, but what does my, like, what is my intuition telling me? What are my instincts saying? And I just think we're so, we're, we're so trained out of that, like in, in every aspect of our lives. And it's really sad. There's this beautiful Glennon Doyle quote, which is stop asking people directions for pla- to places they've never been. And oh I think God, it's, it's so just good. like, it's so true. But to listen to our intuition, when you do get out of the habit of it or you disconnect from it, it's it can be a tricky journey back. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really powerful. And actually just setting a really simple, clear intention mm-hmm. and like kind of repeating and reminding yourself of that. Do you have any practices for sort of deepening that intuitive knowing? Mm. Well, actually, do you know what um, I have started doing is somatic therapy. Um, and that has been really interesting because it's very much, how does it feel in your body? Which again, is not, we're so tapped out of our bodies. Most We live just like, you know. <laughs> I know, we're like and like a friend of mine who's very intuitive you know she said oh if something doesn't feel right for me I'll get like a clenching in my stomach and I'm like oh my god I wish I had something that was so obvious and clear and like oh maybe maybe not um so the somatic therapy has been really helpful because it keeps coming back into what does that feel like in your body and sometimes you think you're making it up she's like oh what color is it and I'm like oh gray whatever like the first thing that comes to my head um but also like and it's such a you know I do find you know with like meditation like I I I, um learned how to do transcendental meditation a couple of years ago and it's it's such a I really wish that like my answers were you know more fun like you know sit in silence and then the answers will come um but yeah I do think the the meditation um has been interesting but I'm, I'm I'm very hopeful about the somatics I think there's something about learning when something feels right or doesn't you know or feels you know wrong in your body um and again as as particularly as women I think you know when we're when we're put into situations where we've felt uncomfortable or like I think you know our, our those instincts are there I think it's just learning how to hone them yeah and not squash them yeah and a really simple practice that I think people you know for the audience listening to take away is I love intuitive dance so actually Putting on music, moving. So if you feel that you are very disconnected with your body, it's a great way of starting up that dialogue again and communicating and just noticing the sensations and the feeling. And then when you need to make a decision later on, like you're more sort of tapped in, I think. Yeah. Have you ever tried five rhythms? I haven't. I know about it though, but I have been to and done similar things, but I I, I would actually enjoy going to Five Brothers. I went and did a yoga class the other day and at the end she made everyone put their hands up like this and just dance for like 10 minutes and it was it was so fun. I loved <laughs> so yeah I've got to give five rhythms a go yeah there's something about it where you know it's it's both that you're getting in touch with your body and also I think learning not to care what other yeah. people think and I mean that's listen I'm Irish that is and I'm from a small like that is hard to sort of like I was at <laughs> I was doing this yoga um uh, this restorative yoga class the other day and there was a woman um next to me and she was a really heavy breather so every time they said you know breathe out she's like I, I was lying there going, this is not helpful. I am thinking homicidal thoughts. <laughs> um, and afterwards I was like, what is, what is this woman? And I think it's trying to think, yeah, that's okay. It's okay. We're all allowed to take up space. And I think it's learning to actually do, because again, I was the part, what I realized, because I sat with it afterwards and I thought, oh, what I felt resentful about was that she was prioritizing her own needs and not worrying um, about whereas I'm always like oh you know I'm sorry now I, I hope I'm not annoying you or I'm <laughs> not you know so I think it was just seeing someone who was really like owning that space for herself and I thought okay it's more it's always more about you than it is about the other person I think isn't that the truest thing yeah. well Louise thank you so so much for joining me on the Saturn Returns podcast. Is there any kind of final words you have for our listeners? Because I feel like so much of this conversation is going to resonate with them. Oh, well, I think, I suppose if you are someone or, you know, you know someone who is struggling, um, 
you know, with an addiction or with an eating disorder, I suppose I always come back to full recovery is possible. Um, and that I think, you know, I suppose it's just holding that hope, um, which can be so difficult when, when the situation seems hopeless, but I'll, I'll hold that hope for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I absolutely love this conversation with Louise. I I love it when people come on that I don't know and they're just willing to go there because I know how medicinal and powerful it is to the audience that are going through something similar but perhaps haven't taken the steps that are necessary. And often these episodes are what encourage people to begin their own path of healing. And so I hope if it's resonated with you that you can talk to someone about it or reach out to myself or Louise. I know this is a very, very sensitive and very complex subject that we discuss. And, you know, it very much impacted me when I was a big theme that I discuss in my book, Saturn Returns, is, you know, the relationship I had with my body. And that was a big, big part of my Saturn Returns journey was addressing that and healing it. Some of the statistics that Louise mentioned in this episode I found particularly staggering. You know, the idea that statistically a third of people recover from an eating disorder, a third learn to live with it, and a third of people die was very, very hard to hear. And I think it's a subject that it affects a lot of people. And so if you are struggling with this, I, you know, my heart goes out to you, or if you know someone that is... I, I empathise hugely, but I just wanted to say a big thank you to Louise for being so open and discussing this with me. Also, this this concept of, you know, an eating disorder being an addiction. And I remember someone saying, you know, it's it's with other addictions, whether it's drugs or alcohol, we can cut it out of our lives. Whereas with food, it's something we have to address and face every day, which makes it one of the more complicated of addictions really also I very much related to her experience with relationships and toxic patterns you know this reprogramming of people that were nice and treated you well as as not exciting and how that's a really big part that we have to kind of mature into and to recognize our own worth and know that we are worthy of being treated incredibly well and that that's something to gravitate towards not against i hope this episode resonated with you and if it did and you would like to share it with someone who you think might find it useful or healing please do and again a big thank you to louise for coming on saturn returns if it has been triggering for you i hope that you can seek some help and support some professional help because I know these things are very complicated. Anyway, I'm sending lots of love to all of you and thank you so much for your continued support of Saturn Returns. Um, it really helps us get discovered by more like-minded people if you could write us a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the solo series if you guys want more from me and Saturn Returns. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.